I don't have a joke this morning. I'm sorry. I'm tired. Yeah. All right. So that's a joke. Yeah, I'm tired. So we're in Haggai. We're ending Haggai today. Chapter 2. Oh, your cell phones, too, if you have your cell phones on. We're in Chapter 2. We're going to finish this very small book. And we uh, have been seeing that the last 16 years, in the prior chapter, the last 16 years, Israel was way out of fellowship with the Lord. They had started the foundation. They started building. Met up with a little bit of opposition. We know what opposition is like. But they gave up and quit. Maybe they thought the opposition was telling them that it wasn't the will of the Lord for them to be building it. Um, or maybe they just didn't want to deal with the opposition and quit. It doesn't really matter. The fact is that they quit. And for 16 years, it lay in ruins. But God sent a message loud and clear to them. It's time to get back to work. You spent all this time and energy taking care of your own homes, but you've been ignoring mine. Zerubbabel and his men got the message. They got the message quick. They repented, and they got back to work as God had commanded them. But by now, that original foundation that had been laying bare for a decade and a half had now pretty much decayed. So really, they had to start all over again. So at first, they appeared very enthusiastic, ready to work. But within a month into the work, they already started showing signs of depression and discouragement. Because in their minds, they thought, this temple is not even going to come close to what Solomon's temple resembled, not in size or in beauty. Now, the younger men never really saw the first temple, so it didn't impact them quite as much. But for the older men who remembered the former glory and the splendor of Solomon's temple, it did affect them. Ezra writes in chapter 3, And all the people shouted with a great shout and praised the Lord because the foundation had been laid. But many of the priests, Levites, heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice. So as the walls were going up, their mood was going down. The fathers, old fathers saw the whole project as a very small thing in their eyes. But as kind as God always is, God was there to encourage them in the work, to keep on keeping on. And he knew what they were thinking, of course. He's omniscient. But he met them right where they were. So beginning in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, it says, On the 21st of the seventh month of the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and also to the remnant of the people, saying, who is left among you who saw this temple and its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst, so do not fear. This is the God who was with them all through the Sinai, in the wilderness, in the tabernacle. He was with them then, and he was with them now. 
hearing things like, oh, this is nothing compared to the first temple is really not much to get the mood of work going. So God agreed with them. God, God agreed with them right where they were. He said they were right. Solomon's temple was more opulent and big. Some estimate somewhere between 20 to $50 million worth of gold were covering its cedar planks. It was something to behold. But nothing is small and insignificant if God is in it. God is saying, don't look at the exterior. Look on the inside. I'm there. I'm in your midst. God had reminded them three times to take courage, for I'm with you. So what he's saying is it's not what you're doing. It's who you're doing it for. Zechariah, I love Zechariah 4.10 because it says, For who has despised the day of small things? They felt what they were doing in comparison to the previous temple was small and insignificant. And God was saying, no, you're building this for me. We live in such a competitive world that we're always comparing ourselves to other things. There's always going to be somebody better than us or something supposed to be bigger is supposed to be better. But when you work in a ministry, there's nothing small about it because our God is huge. And he's the God of the universe. Um, and I know sometimes we do feel our, our, our ministries are small when you compare them to people that are, it seems like somebody you might know, every time he opens his mouth, someone gets saved. And, and, you're, and you're, you know, you're just doing something totally different. I remember back 24 years ago when I first came to this church, I was scared to death because I was new to Florida, new to Lakeside, but I saw women plugged in everywhere and I wanted a ministry so bad. And um, they needed someone to make coffee. We don't have coffee anymore, but they used to have coffee before the ladies' Bible study. And LaVon was asking, and I said, well, I like coffee, and I, I drink coffee, and I know how to make coffee. So I put my hand up, and I was the coffee lady for a year. And I, I was so excited. You know, you'd think I was like, you know, a missionary in uh, Amazon. I was just like, you know, but it meant a lot to me because the job needed to be done and I could do it, and it was for God. It was God's people. So it, it, that was my first like, real ministry, ministry in an in um, organized Bible study. But I felt like it was important. Now, if I compared it to someone else's, um, people would laugh. But So don't ever compare your ministry to somebody else's, and don't underestimate it. The importance of what you're doing is, is for God, and the important thing is to be faithful in it, uh, to be faithful in what you're doing. Um, I love this quote. Uh, uh, this is a quote from Elizabeth Elliot, and um, it's about this very thing. What is the next thing for you to do? Small duties, perhaps? Jobs that nobody will notice as long as you, as long as you have to do them? A dirty job that you would get out of if you could? <laughs> Are you asked to take some great responsibility which you don't feel qualified for? You don't have to do the whole thing right this minute, do you? I can tell you one thing that you have to do right this minute. It's the one thing that's required of all of us every minute of every day in, in whatever God gives us to do. Trust in the living God. So Elizabeth Elliot was one that could talk about these things. She did great things for the Lord. And one of the other things we have to do is evaluate our ministry in the light of eternity. Many of us may never see the fruit of what we're doing right now. It may come a generation from now long gone after we're with the Lord. 
So big is not always better. God has always used small things. 1 Corinthians 1.26 Consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you are wise, not many powerful, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things to shame the wise, and God has chose the weak things to shame the strong. So God was telling this remnant, never mind how things were. I can make a small thing great. Verses 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea, and also the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the desire of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. I see a lot of repetition of the Lord of hosts. So he says it five times, and what it really means is the Lord of armies, or denoting a universal sovereign authority, which indeed the Lord of hosts is. This passage is totally prophetic. It's speaking of a future time in which God will shake the heavens and the earth, and this will happen just prior to the second coming of Christ, Um, Further explanations of this period can be found in Matthew 24, Isaiah 13, Revelation 16, and 19. I liked Isaiah 13, 13. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts. The Lord says in a little while, meaning any span of time that can be imminent. At that time, he will shake all things. Matthew 24 does expand on this time as being the second coming at the end of the tribulation. There is a bit of disagreement among scholars as to how verse 7 is read. Some scholars read it the, the word desire of all nations to mean uh, um, that the desire of all nations would be Jesus. And some read it to mean the wealth of all nations, meaning gold and silver. Well, we know at this time, Jesus is definitely not the desire of all nations. They hate him. And in Psalm 2, it tells you how they rebel against, the nations rebel against the Lord. But I think if you're interpreting the verse, both things are going to end up being true. There will be gold and silver being brought by the nations to the temple And Jesus will, in the end, be the desire of all nations. He will be the desire that will inhabit the temple. So the Messiah will eventually be inhabiting the millennial temple. So it it could mean both. So in any case, I don't see any reason to challenge that. The Messiah will be the glory of the temple. And yes, he will eventually reign in a, a temple ensconced in silver and gold, which the Gentile nations will bring forth and God says it himself, the silver and gold belongs to him. Verse 8 says, the silver and gold is mine. So either way, both of them are going to happen. Isaiah 69 through 10 speaks of them coming with their silver and gold. Their silver and their gold they will bring with them, and the foreigners will build up the walls. My gates will be open continually, and they will not be closed day or night, so that men may bring to you the wealth of all nations. The passage goes on to speak of the latter glory of this house will be the millennial temple and the place that Christ will be because he will give peace, peace to the nations. And he is the Messiah, the Prince of Peace, the glory of the latter temple. Jesus said himself in Matthew 12, when he was talking to the priests in Matthew 12 and they were discussing the temple, 
He said to them, I tell you all something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. He was referring to himself. They were just all thought the temple was the greatest thing, but he is greater than any temple. And it was in Zerubbabel's temple, which had been expanded by Herod in Jesus' time on earth. It was in Zerubbabel's temple that Jesus taught, that Jesus healed, that he cleansed, turned over the money changers' tables. So he was actually in that temple at one point. The Jews viewed each temple as a separate entity. Solomon was the first one destroyed by the Babylonians. Zerubbabel was the second one enlarged by Herod and then eventually destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And then we know that there will eventually be the millennial temple. Um, but Jesus Christ is the one who's going to reign in the, in the ultimate temple. And Ezekiel 40 through 48 describes how beautiful this temple is going to be. But people see them as separate temples. But to God, it was always one continuous temple moving forward. So the people have to realize that, and we have to realize that it isn't what the temple looks like on the inside. It's who's dwelling on the on the. It doesn't matter what it looks like on the outside. It's who's dwelling on the inside. The eventual fullness of the glory will be found in the millennial temple, where Christ will reign forever. And that's the end of the temple. On the twenty fourth of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, "Thus says the Lord." Now these are two really. Good theological questions. Um, ask now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold of cooked food, wine, or oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest said, no. Then Haggai said, if anyone is unclean from touching a corpse and, the, and any of these things be touched, will it become unclean? And the priest said, yes, it will become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. So is every work of their hands and every offering. They're unclean. What he was trying to say was, by being in the temple, by building a temple, by touching a holy object, doesn't make anyone holy. And there's rich meaning to both of these questions because they were kind of in regards to the Old Testament ceremonial laws concerning clean things and unclean things, but what the prophet was really asking was, can something or someone holy transfer their holiness to someone who's unholy and make them holy? The correct answer is no. Holiness is not communicable. It's not transferable. And if something's unclean and touches something holy, does that make the holy thing unclean? The answer is yes. Sin is transferable. Sin is contagious. It's kind of like, it's true in science, it's true in medicine. If I'm a healthy person and I walk into a cancer ward and touch a cancer patient, that's not going to make him well. But if I, being a healthy person, walk into a hospital and touch a contagious person, I could become ill. So the message conveyed here is that people who are in sin and out of fellowship with the Lord, all they do and offer to him isn't going to make a difference. It is contaminated. It's still unholy. The offerings the service, the ministry to the temple, whatever. That is true of us as well. Our responsibility to God, even before our ministry, is holy living. Our ministry comes second. Anyone can perform a ministry. doesn't make them holy. But if God is not in it, it's worthless ministry. God may use it in spite of us, but we'll miss out on the blessing. Verses 15 through 19 
But now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would only be 10. And when he came to a wine vat of 50 measures, there would only be 20. I smote you in every work of your hands with blasting wind, with mildew and hail, and you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn? Even including the vine, the fig tree, it has not borne fruit. But he said, yet from this day forward, I will bless you. The Lord was referring back to the 16 years of disobedience of the Jews in leaving the temple and the building of the foundation in the first place to go and build their own homes. They had no desire to make a dwelling place for the Lord, so God had chastised them agriculturally in withholding rain, causing loss of crops. But now they had repented, yet they still lacked crops. Sin's consequences sometimes have to catch up to you. They have to run their cycle. And the Lord assured them that if they remained faithful and obedient, that from this day forward, he would bless them. So I kind of looked at this as every day is a chance to start a new day with the Lord. As long as we have breath, there's always the chance to start over again and repent and have a new beginning. He's compassionate. His mercies are new every morning. And it's also true that some sin's consequences may never go away. Sometimes they're permanent in nature. But when a sinner repents, God will bless Verses 20 through 23. This is the fourth message. Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations, and I will overthrow their chariots, their riders, and their horses. Their riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This was the second message given in one day. This one, though, was directed personally to Zerubbabel only. The Lord called him, not the governor, he called him my servant, which is a distinctly Davidic messianic title. It was always reserved for uh, Jesus, and he's always spoken of as the suffering servant in Isaiah and Psalms. So this message was very prophetic. The Lord was going to shake the heavens and the earth, overthrowing the Gentile nations. Revelation chapter 16 and 19 refer to this, the fall of the nations. And again, Matthew 24. But by the Lord saying that he'd chosen Zerubbabel, calling him a servant and not a governor, and blessing him by referring to him as a signet ring, all corresponds to him being in the lineage of the Messiah through both Mary and Joseph, the bloodline of Mary and the legal line of Joseph. Both lines can be seen in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. It records Zerubbabel's name all the way down. Being like a signet ring refers to authority and honor. Signet rings were worn by kings. They were worn by royalty, people of great authority, to sign very important documents. Jesus is the ultimate signal ring. But Zerubbabel was symbolic in that he carried that honor down through the line, just as David did in the genealogy of Christ. So God is confirming to the people that, yes, they will one day have a king. They didn't then, but they will one day have a king again. 
and that king will be Jesus Christ. They may have missed the day of their visitation in the beginning, but they will one day recognize their Messiah when he comes again. So the three principles I think we can apply to all this, uh, a lot of it being uh, in the future, we can apply some of it now. Personal holiness needs to be priority in any ministry we have. Obedience and faithfulness are what pleases the Lord the most. Ministry without him is worthless. Remember who you are doing your ministry for. It's the Lord. We also need to perform our ministry in light of eternity and not just for today. Many of us will never see the impact that we have on other people. That fruit may only come long after we are gone. The next thing is you can always start over. God has said from this day forward, if we've blown it, we can repent. We can start over. As long as we have breath, we can begin afresh. The Lord has said his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And the last thing is that God always keeps his word. Israel had sinned, but God had not forgotten them. Some teach in the church that God has turned away from Israel and his focus is now solely on the church. This could not be further from the truth. God will never leave his people Israel. He has made promises exclusively to them, especially Romans 9 through 11 makes that clear. The promise will come to pass, and he is just as faithful to us as well. There will be a temple in the kingdom. Its glory will far surpass any other temple, but not because it's beautiful, but because who's inside. Let's pray. In Jesus' name, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. And sometimes it's very difficult to communicate. But Lord, we just pray that we'd be able to put the parts that we do understand into action in our lives daily, Lord, to honor you and that you would get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.